ladies and gentlemen, uh, we'll get underway at 7.30. Uh, just to remind you that this meeting is being recorded in the usual way. Um, I welcome you all, members and uh, members of the public, to the first planning policy working group uh, of the new term. Um, it gives me very great pleasure, and, and we will start with this, so we'll do the minutes and matters arising, etc., after our presentation. Uh, but it gives me very great pleasure to welcome Garden City Developments, um, which, as you've already heard, is a community interest company, um, to present to us this evening. Uh, Sir Brian Briscoe in the middle, John Walker, and Linda. Addison. Um, before they start, I think uh, Andrew's just going to say a few words himself. Thank you, Chairman. Um, yes, as we've indicated, over the next few months, the Council will need to be considering um, the new local plan process, the vision and objectives, and how we're looking at delivering our, our housing needs through uh, our various distribution strategies. One of the things that was highlighted by the inspector was new settlements as a potential option. So we have to consider all the different aspects of, of, of potential distribution strategies. So as part of that discussion with members and, and the thought process over the next few months, we thought it would be useful to have um, an explanation of, from, from Garden City Developments about the type of work they're involved in, um, the sort of things that they've been involved with in other local councils, and to enable you to ask questions about the sort of work and the sort of um, benefits as they see them of this sort of development to enable the, your thought processes to, to start moving. So I will hand over to the team. Thank you, Chairman. And uh, let me say, first of all, that uh, Garden City Developments <coughs> is a company that is interested in helping people to develop uh, development that is in accordance with Garden City principles, which doesn't mean they have to be big, but it means they have to com comply with certain key characteristics. It's not about simply building good development, because everybody should be doing that. It's about doing good development in a way that enables um, the land to be used effectively to deliver the uh, infrastructure necessary to support a settlement uh, and also uh, to provide uh, an ongoing stream of income which supports the uh, onward maintenance uh, and preservation of what has been created in the development. We set this company up. Um, Linda and I in particular were members of the Town and Country Planning Association. Town and Country Planning Association is most associated with Letchworth Garden City and Welling Garden Garden City. Um, and the reason uh, those two communities in Hertfordshire uh, were set up in the way they were was because um, the people who uh, were thinking about planning and development in the late uh, 19th and early 20th century were trying to find a way to build communities that people would want to live in that combined the best of town and country. Um, the circumstances then were very different from now with pollution in, in, in cities um, and uh, uh, social problems, uh, slums and, and what have you. Um, and Ebenezer Howard and latterly uh, Frederick Osborne together had this idea that if you could take a piece of land and develop it in accordance with some uh, 
proper principles of planning, incorporating towns and gardens and the countryside into the community, you could create places that were uh, urban but where people would want to live. And uh, both Letchworth and Welling Garden City, for those of you who have been there, will know that they are, have been very successful uh, settlements and communities. Now, the reason that we're interested in this is because we're involved with the TCPA. I have an additional interest in that I was a planner in Hertfordshire for a time, and I was chief executive of Hertfordshire for six years before I went to the Local Government Association. Um, and uh, it, seems, it seemed to me for a long time now we have been failing as a country to deliver the quality and quantity of housing development and of communities, because it's not just about adding housing estates to existing developments, it's about creating communities where people have got access to all the things they need um, to live uh, a decent and proper life rather than simply living in a housing estate stuck on the edge of, a, of, of, of the next biggest town. And we've been failing to do this partly because the planning system is a difficult thing to manage, partly because there's a lot of public interest in development, and rightly so, and partly because some of the uh, uh, developments that have taken place have been fought through by developers who are more interested at the end of the day in screwing a planning permission out of uh, the local authority than they are in staying with the development for a, a long period uh, and seeing it develop uh, and seeing a community develop and creating the kind of place that people would want to live in. So Garden City uh, Developments was set up as a community interest company. We're a not-for-profit company. Uh, indeed, the uh, directors take no uh, uh, remuneration at all. I'm not even claiming expenses. We're doing it because we think this is an important thing for the country, for the people who come after us who need housing, um, and they need housing in communities that are worth living in, uh, and, and, and not some of the things that have been happening over the last 20 or 30 years. So we're kind of utopian, naive, um, probably a bit simple really, but all of us have had experience in uh, dealing with the very complex things that all of you as councillors and, and officials have to deal with when you're dealing with development. So we kind of know what it's like, but we want it to be better. And that's what uh, this community interest company is about. Um, Linda and I are directors of the company. We have another uh, director, uh, Robbie Owen, um, and uh, John Walker has been helping us with the work we're currently doing in uh, Colchester, Tendring uh, and Braintree, uh, where they are going through the same kind of process that I guess you're going to go through in, in, the, in the coming months, trying to think out how they can take control of a development uh, situation where they need to build housing, but they also need to create <coughs> communities. And the key to our role, if you want us to sit alongside you and help you with that, is not to be your planners. You've got planners. We're not master planners. We're not trying to tell you how to do the environmental detail of new development. Um, you will have lots of professionals who can do that. What we're trying to do is to give you the confidence 
that by talking to the landowners, the public, the infrastructure providers, the planning authority themselves, together we can uh, create the opportunity to draw together the land and have a medium-term, long-term strategy for development of your district and probably districts close to you um, because no districts in Ireland in, in, in the competition and pressure for development. Um, so we're not attempting to plan garden cities. We are attempting to help those who have a responsibility for uh, planning garden cities. In the discussions we've been having so far, uh, we've identified um, the need for the councils to be quite clear about what they're trying to achieve before they start um, allocating land, talking to landowners, uh, deciding on the scale and pace of development. There needs to be quite a lot of conversation, a lot of discussion beforehand about how to get yourselves into a position to say what you want on behalf of your community. Uh, you're responsible for the planning of this area, not the residential uh, house builders who want to come in and build, but the council. And the council needs to take control of the situation by being clear about what it wants and what it will have. We're happy to support in whatever way you wish us to, to, to support you. Um, we're equally happy simply to tell you what we're doing and then walk away. Um, and I'm here in my own time. I've got to go on holiday tomorrow. My wife's not pleased with me. Um, because I think this is an important thing for us to do. Um, and it's important that the southeast of England particularly responds properly to the challenge it's got of not having built enough houses, there being too many young people who need housing who haven't got the option uh, in this area. Um, and we need to find ways of solving those problems. Um, and to the extent that I spent quite a lot of my career inside the system trying to solve it, it's quite nice sitting outside and telling other people how to do it. <clears throat> but we do want to sit alongside you and help you to do it, not just tell you how to do it. Um, we've encouraged uh, ATLAS, who are uh, an agency of the uh, Communities and Local Government uh, Department, to get involved in this. And in our work in Colchester, um, we're developing a, a financial model which is designed to demonstrate that if you take a large amount of land and decide how you want to develop it, in other words, do a plan for it, um, and you work with the landowners and the infrastructure providers, um, you can, uh, by using the land value, deliver a quality of development that you can't do by incremental uh, uh, housing developments on the edge of settlements. We think that viability testing, that, that, mo that financial model gives us the opportunity to use, is a way of conversing with uh, landowners and developers in a language that they will see coming from the, uh, this side of the table um, has a reasonableness to it. Everyone needs to make a profit out of this business. The public need to make a profit. The local authority needs to make a profit and get decent development. The landowner needs to make a profit and the developer needs to make a profit. But they don't need to make 
one of them doesn't need to make a profit at the expense of all the others. And there's been too much experience of that in Britain, particularly in adversarial uh, planning context, where the developer fights for five years to get a planning permission and then seeks to extend it or go to appeal or uh, see if he can get the Secretary of State to give him something that the local authority won't do. Now, we understand all of that. What we think you should be doing as a council, what we think all councils should be doing, is identifying their vision for their area, looking at their development needs long term, talking to their neighbours about how to uh, best uh, achieve the needs of the area, um, and creating the kind of context within which proper planning can be done. I'm going to stop at that point, Chairman, and, and, and invite anyone to, to ask us questions about what we uh, believe Garden Cities are about. Well, thank you very much, Sir Brian. Um, throw it open for questions. Councillor Barker. Thank you, Chairman. Um, I think the first obvious question has to be, between what lower number and upper number do you envisage a garden development should be? Um, I think probably uh, there isn't an answer to that, but I'll give you a, a, a guide. A garden suburb could be constructed in the sort of region of four and a half, five, six, seven thousand houses. Garden City, you're probably going to want something that's big enough to support. Um, the secondary schools and other facilities. So you're probably talking about 15 to 20,000 houses as being um, a kind of minimum. Now, that doesn't mean that there can't be settlements that are a different size and don't take account of what's already there. Um, there are communities uh, in uh, parts of Essex which have the elements of, of garden suburb uh, with 2,000 houses. So I think the principle is what, what, what's important. Take the value of the land and take out of the value of the land everything you need to do a decent development to provide a reward for the landowner and to provide a reward for the developer but to make sure that the land continues to provide a stream of income to support the services that will need to go on while that community exists. That's what happens in Letchworth. In Letchworth, there's an endowment which is used to do a lot of the maintenance of the parks, gardens, highways and what have you in Letchworth. So Letchworth has a higher standard of environmental presentation than the rest of North Hertfordshire. And that's because that land is providing uh, a stream of income to support those services. Could you just outline what, 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 what you get, as it were, for a garden suburb? So you've ruled out a secondary, a secondary school, but what would be in a garden suburb? Well, you'd have to have, you have, to have primary schools. You'd have to have some form of shopping. But a lot of the services would depend upon what other alternatives were available locally. And that's why you need to do... You can't say there's an answer that you can take off a peg and stick down somewhere and say that's a garden suburb. You would design what you were going to do according to the amount of land you've got, the scale of development, the time over which it's going to take place, and what is surrounding it. So there's no, it's, not a, it's not a panacea, this. It's, it's a process, a way of going about doing development, which is different from the 
landowner buys land, fights the local authority to get planning permission, um, gets a, a, a limited amount, then goes to appeal for some more because he says it's not viable. Uh, the planning authorities have the public shouting that this is not right and then they let everybody down when you eventually get a decision which isn't what everybody wants or what anybody wants. Did I see, uh, Councillor Dean. Um, nice to see you again, Brian. I remember you from your days at the LGA and uh, <coughs> many words of wisdom then, so I'm listening intently tonight. <laughs> uh, I'd like to um, ask a question really about trying to draw this distinction. And I know you've used the word process, but you did say earlier that uh, uh, you know, the process is very different from incremental uh, development o on the edge of town. And, I'm, and yet, equally well, you've said that you could be talking about something which was two, even 2,000 rather than four to 6,000. So I'm just trying to work out what's the difference between incremental development of, on a small scale and using this process. Is it something to do with the fact that the way the planning system seems to work is, as you, I think you said earlier, that one gives planning permission and the developer cries poverty and says, oh, we can't afford to um, put any affordable housing in, so, so everybody compromises eventually and you end up with what you didn't want. So it's, 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 it's about the framework, is it, and the legal framework behind it? Well, let me ask John to respond to that because question, I'm not saying the question is too difficult, <laughs> but, but he can probably give you an alternative voice. Well, I think it, it, it's building on what you were saying earlier, Brian, because I think uh, what we're talking about is a process which enables the local community through the local council to take control of this. Sorry, am I not coming through on the mic? Um, and also to... Um, and that requires the council to do quite a lot of upfront thinking. So it does front end load some of the work that might otherwise be done. So, for example, uh, where we're working in Colchester and Braintree, there's been quite a lot of thought given already to the form of delivery agency that might deliver a garden suburb or a garden city. Um, there's been a lot of thought given to the kind of community trust structure that might be put in place and how it would be funded to look after the long-term maintenance and governance of local facilities, uh, parks, meeting places, etc. Um, and that requires the council to think corporately in a positive way about what it wants and how it's going to get it. Um, partly because that's really uh, essential if the local community is going to get what it wants because uh, if it doesn't know what it wants how will it ever get it uh, and secondly because if there's going to be a productive discussion with landowners uh, wherever the land is the landowners need to see a credible um, proposition from local government and frankly most landowners if faced by a local authority uh, and told by that local authority that they'd really like to take control of the development uh, we'll need some evidence to convince them that it's worth taking the local authority seriously. Uh, so there is some upfront work to be done, and the whole process requires the vision and the ownership of what's going to happen to be embedded in the leadership of the local authority so that you can then talk credibly about how it will be delivered, long-term governance, what sort of things you're looking for, backed up, of course, then with the financial model that Brian talked about, which, again helps to shift the balance of influence and power between landowner, developer and local authority because the typical situation here is that a developer 
uh, in cahoots with a landowner will say they've done a viability test on this and what you're asking for can't be afforded. And if you try and argue with it, they'll have it close to their chest and they'll be saying, well, we've tried that and it doesn't work. We're trying to put the local authority in a position where there's an open source model that enables you to put all the costs in uh, of all the things you want and actually demonstrate the viability. And also to look at things like where the investment comes from. Do you want to invest as a local community in your own development? Because the rewards can be enormous in the long term. Um, the new towns demonstrated this. Uh, so it, it enables you to be uh, in control of the process, but it does require you to do more work than you might otherwise do up front. Councillor Loughlin and then Councillor Mills. Thank you. Um, well, Colchester is quite a large settlement, well, much, certainly larger than we've got in Uttlesford, and Braintree also to a certain extent. Um, so I, I don't know the terms and numbers that you would be talking and what, uh, how a developer would think that that would be viable. And I just wondered, do you come against much opposition? Do you actually talk to people in the area and explain to them about garden cities? Okay, talking to us, but talking to parish councils on things like that, who would be in close proximity. And also, if you say you're talking 2,000 houses, you're actually putting quite a lot of strain on local facilities. Perhaps hospitals, I mean, hospitals now aren't in your back garden like they used to be. I mean, we have to go to Harlow or we have to go to Addenbrooke. There are no local hospitals, and 2,000, uh, a development of 2,000 houses will put quite a strain on that, and I'm just wondering how that is dealt with. Could I just pick up the, yeah, the second sure. part first and then maybe move on to the first? The second part is, is the, in, a, in a way is the simplest because what we're trying to do is help local authorities to actually have a clear view of all the different things that will be needed to support the community. Some of those will be inside the community, some of them will be outside inevitably and the smaller the settlement the more of those things will be outside. They might be in existing nearby towns and they might need reinforcing and there needs to be some money to do that. Uh, and it shouldn't be 10 years after all the population have moved in. It should be in tune with when the population comes in so that existing people don't suffer because of new development. And this is one of the things that's wrong with the present model, that developers, uh, if, they are, uh, if they can be persuaded to build or to fund some of those extra things, often do it late in the day, if at all. So it's, it's helping the local authorities see what the costs should be and build them into the process. In terms of talking to parish councils, I mean, as Brian said, we're not there to do the planning and we're not there to have ownership of the vision either. It needs to be your vision. We could support uh, discussions with parish councils and others to help explain the principles as we are doing tonight. But it would have to be the local authority that was up front on that because it has to be your, your vision. But, but the, just to finish on the point you made at the end, the, that one on. the, um, the impact that new development makes on public services is what this is all about, actually. It's about saying that should not happen and the developer walk away and the landowner walk away with their profit and the problems be dumped on the, either the local community who don't have the services or on the local authority who needs to provide them, or indeed some of the statutory undertakers. The, the, that extra demand when you allow a development should have been worked out beforehand and you should have worked out how the land value is going to contribute to the solution to that problem. Now, it probably for 2,000 houses wouldn't buy a new hospital, but it might 
it might do something different for the local area in terms of GP surgeries or it might do something about um, a community hall or a community centre that could be used by peripatetic um, nursing staff or whatever. The, the, there's a range of things that can be talked about. The point is that new development ought to pay for itself and not act as a cost to the local community. And it's that kind of discussion that you should be having with your public because I don't blame your public for saying I don't want new development if all I get is more traffic and more problems. We understand that. So let's create a system in which what happens when a piece of development is allowed makes the place better. Not just the place that is built, but the rest of the surrounding area. And that's, it's your responsibility as local authorities to do that. And sometimes I think, you know, you've got a bit battered and bruised by, the, by, by life, really. <laughs> Councillor Mills. Uh, yes, I presume um, in an ideal world what you're sort of advocating is that uh, these decisions and these sites might be actually identified prior to a call for land and things like that if the forward thinking was enough. And therefore you're not fighting the developers who are already in with the landowners who already you know, have cut a cake to a certain size. So really what you're talking about is thinking longer term, 10, 15 years, 20 years, I would guess. Um, and if that's the case, some of the arrangements that Mr Taylor's making with sieving the land would therefore identify sites that much further in advance and therefore you would approach the landowner with some sort of corporate body that would therefore take something forward under a new umbrella, effectively becoming your own developers in some way. Is that the concept? That sounds great. Yeah. Want to work for Thank it. you, I'll rest my canis here. Yeah. <laughs> Can I just uh, you summed it up ever so well there, but when you said mm. at the end you would become the developers, yeah. you, the council, would you become would be the, the developers, developer. not us, we're not developers. We'll just help you. Yeah. Councillor Davis and Councillor Lodge. Okay, thank you. Um, I was just wondering to, to anyone, just how important you'd say an integrated and accessible transport system would be to the successful delivery of a garden suburb. Is it, is it a, you know, is it a key pillar that underpins your principles, or is it something which is not within the first couple of points, or is it absolutely one of the first uh, areas that you absolutely have to nail down? Linda, do you want to do that? Uh, it's one of the key principles. It's. <laughs> uh, a sustainable integrated transport system is one of the key principles of the TCPA Garden Cities. So yes, it is one of ours. Uh, it, we don't have them in a hierarchy in that sense, but if you're going to create places that work for the future, that people are going to enjoy to be able to live in and work in and play in, then you need to have a, an integrated transport system. But it comes back to the same discussion on the hospital. Depending on the size, depending on where it is, depending on what else is already in existence, then one needs to build in what's needed to make it a better integrated transport system into the overall costs and the financial model. So yes, that's part of the process. Councillor Lodge. Thank you. I know that um, maybe not too long ago there was some central government funding available for uh, garden cities. Uh, question is, is as you, are you aware, is that money still available? How is it competed for? I presume it is a, a competition. And it could very well be that within the next f uh, few months this could be a position that, that, that we do decide to go and, and look at that and maybe more proactive in our um, search for sites. Um, is, is, uh, would this centre fund still be available? 
Um, in, in the short term, most of the cost is actually doing the work that we've been talking about to actually form your vision, work out what you want, what it will cost, is it viable, uh, do the groundwork. Um, and that costs quite a lot of money in terms of staff or consultants. Um, and that is exactly the sort of thing that government is funding at the moment. In fact, um, I don't think it's any secret that your, your neighbours are putting in a bid right now, um, the neighbours that we're working for, for, for that kind of funding. So it, it is certainly true that there is revenue funding to support the professional work that needs to be done to put you in a position to be in control to get what you want. When it comes to capital funding, um, you're probably a little way off that, so it's difficult to say whether what's there now will be there in three, four years' time. But um, certainly there is a track record of, cap of, of either uh, soft loans or grants being available. One of the places I worked, I, I was chairman of the board in Hampshire at a place called Whitehill and Borden, an old army base, uh, for three years until recently. Um, and they managed to get about £50 million pounds worth of grants and soft loans out of various government sources once they got their thinking sorted and they had a credible plan to put forward. I would imagine that sort of funding might still be there, but you might also need to think of investing yourself alongside that because part of the case to government often is to show commitment from the local community in order to get some kind of matching finance from central government. So, so what, what I think you're saying there is that there could well be an opportunity for us in the next few months to get that, that, that research funding to, to employ and do, and do that work, if I, we so choose. I think, first of all, to get that far, you probably have to have some ideas thought through about the scale of what you're willing to look at um, so that you've got something that excites communities and local government enough to say, well, yes, this, this could make a uh, basis of a good bid. But I think that CLG are quite uh, supportive of this at the moment, although we're too early into the new government term to have any real evidence of that, it has to be said. Councillor Oliver and then Councillor Parry. Uh, thank you, Chairman. Thank you, it's a great idea, and there's a lot, there's a lot of positives. We are a small district council, and we are talking about building, having to, be, having to build some 10,000 houses in the next 20 years. What you're coming up and saying is a, a minimum figure for a garden suburb would be some 2,000, i.e. a fifth of the total. So while that is going on, there's pressure coming in from all the developers all over the place, all over the district, wishing to push ahead. So the problem comes, we don't honestly think have the time, because we have to do the, this plan in the very near future, to follow through your ideas, because to put 20% of the proposed development in one site which could presumably be against Saffron Walden because it's the biggest town and it's going to be a suburb, so it's not going to be a, a freestanding site. couldn't be. You just, I'm afraid I can't see for a small district like this it's going to work. I think, I think you're right to say that what we're talking about won't solve all your problems in the short term. Um, 
what it would do if you decided to take this approach would probably give you some solutions that would last 20 or 30 years and become a core part uh, and a substantial part of what you had to deliver during that time. Um, and that ought to take pressure off future decision makers uh, who would otherwise probably be under pressure to find more and more sites uh, every few years. So it won't solve all your problems in the short term. Um, what your opportunities are here, I, know, I have no idea. You, you know far better than we do. I do know that some of the authorities we're working for at the moment are considering some sites that are close to your boundaries. Uh, they're still to, to, shoot, to choose which sites they want to run with. Whether there's any potential for you to co collaborate and cooperate there, I have no idea. But it's, it's only, only you can make the decision how much you might want to put into a garden suburb or garden city and where it might be. And it won't solve all your short-term problems, but it will take some of the heat off, and it will certainly take a lot of heat off your longer-term decision-making issues. But it, it wouldn't be a garden city because you're saying that would be a minimum in excess of what the total we have to build in, ten, in 20 years. Start from the principle that there is a particular size. It's a style of development. It's a way of going about the process of meeting the challenge you've got to deliver development. Uh, it's about having conversations with the landowners and the developers rather than simply drawing things on a plan and then seeing who wants to build it. And, and that is actually a quite, quite a different process from what's been happening in an awful lot of uh, local authorities in the southeast. Um, you haven't got time to do it, you're quite right, you're under enormous pressure, but on the other hand you haven't got time not to do it, because if you don't do it, the problems will be even worse going forward. So I think there's a there's a need for you to think quickly and in a focused way about what the needs of this district are, how they relate to the surrounding areas, whether the surrounding areas have similar and uh, uh, both needs and opportunities, um, and how best to get the, the package that you will need over the next 10 to 20 years uh, created. And when we talk about garden suburbs and garden cities, we, we sound as though we're talking about physical entities. We're actually talking about the nature of the process, which is about creating the conditions that the land delivers, the infrastructure and the public services that are needed, and that the land delivers in the medium term and the, and the longer term a maintenance function for those areas and that community, which is not a drag on the local authorities or other public services. Councillor Parry, then Councillor Dean. You did touch on it earlier, but could you explain just how the land provides an income stream when it's got houses on it? I don't quite understand how you continue to get money out of it. Um, well, I mean, in, in, certain, in, in terms of looking after parkland, for instance, and community facilities, uh, most local authorities charge an adoption charge when, when a development is completed. What we're talking about here, again, is it's a, it's a process change. We're talking about you looking at an area which you would choose to have to see as a garden suburb or a garden city, working out what it will cost in the long term to manage and run those public facilities, and then making sure that the money for that comes out of the land value, either as a, a, an endowment uh, or as an income stream. 
but the income stream would come from the endowment if you had an endowment. Right. Uh, I mean, Milton Keynes, where I live, um, I, I helped set up the Milton Keynes Parks Trust 23 years ago. That was given an endowment that was equal to the normal adoption charge. It wasn't excessive. It was the normal adoption charge. The Parks Trust was given an endowment uh, and, and asked to manage the parks and manage the endowment. It turned the endowment of 18 million into 85 million today, and it manages the parks to a much higher standard than the local authority would have been able to. So it's, it's, it's putting the money into a ring fence position, extracted from land value, but not in an excessive way necessarily, and then giving it some guardianship in terms of people who look after it, in this case, a, a charity called the Parks Trust. Okay, thank you. And what John's describing there is the modern version of what they did in Letchworth, which was basically they won't sell you a house other and than have, leasehold. Have and so you pay a ground rent, and the ground rent contributes to the right. running of the town. Have now schemes run out is, of money? Is probably, sorry? Have schemes ever run out of money? Garden cities or suburbs or things working on a similar basis? Because in you've the got same to keep way that local authorities can run out of money, yes, they, there must be a possibility of that happening. Um, uh, but nowhere has collapsed as a result of I mean, it. <laughs> if you take the Milton Keynes example I just mentioned, I, I, because I know quite a lot about that one, um, the, I mean, the analogy in a way is where if the money had been given to the local authority, and they won't mind me saying this because they'd say it themselves, they would have put it into their general revenue fund and five years later you wouldn't have known you had it. Because it was put into the Parks Trust and trustees were appointed of some ability, all, all giving their time for free, they turned this endowment into something five times what it was originally and they maintained the parks. So, you know, the difference between setting things up in different ways can be enormous. Yes, the, 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 there was a danger, there still could be, that they might go out of business, but it doesn't look likely, and they look like uh, far less likely to lose track of where the money is than, than, than might have happened. Thank you. Councillor Dean, then Councillor Harris, then Councillor Barker, and I think we'll have been around the room. Um, I, conscious, obviously, of time, but if there are one or two burning questions from members of the public, happy to take those, but we'll do that round now. Dean Harris-Barker, thank you. Yes, thank you. We, we had a question a few minutes ago about whether there's time to do this, because it's obviously a big thing. I always take the, uh, the view that planning never ends. You know, you might be producing a local plan for 15 years, but after that, the world doesn't come to an end. So you've got to, I uh, think, long term, you might do it iteratively. Um, what I wanted to really ask is if one created this vision um, which said that spot X is where something like this would work and yet spot X hasn't been put forward by a landowner uh, at the moment um, but spot X is the right place, then does that mean that um, a garden suburb can be forgotten or other ways around that? And, and secondly, I, I, I've either read or seen on television some talk about some sort of garden development at either Bicester or Banbury. Uh, if, am I correct on that? And if so, do you know anything about it in terms of its size and whether it is an add-on to an existing town? It is an add-on, and I think it's about 7,000 homes, I think. Um, but it, it is an add-on to Vista, and, and it was... Um, I'm not absolutely sure it's being developed entirely in, in, in accordance with the principles we're talking about. 
Can I just add to that? Um, Yeah, it's been built onto an existing town. It's basically, by and large, more housing estates, but as a higher quality in terms of energy and things like that. So from a lot, there are a lot of good things about the new development, but it's not what we're talking about. It hasn't been set up in the same way in terms of providing an income in the way that we've just talked about for the long-term maintenance of the services or the infrastructure uh, and the land. It has been done as a series of developments as part of what was originally an eco-town under a previous um, system. So I don't think you can in any way compare what's going on at Vista with what we are talking about here which is actually setting it up in a very different way, much more like the Letchworths of this world than anything to do with Vista. In terms of choosing the site, I mean, I'm not an expert on how the current planning system works, so you might want to shoot me down in flames here. I think it would be tremendous if you came up with a site you thought was best, as opposed to simply one that had been submitted by landowners that want to make some money. Now, um, that does mean getting in early in the process, of course, um, because really, if you're creating a vision for your community, you've probably got a better sense of where it would be best to put it than landowners or developers. Um, And, you know, uh, I I find myself slightly despairing if if local authorities simply say, well, these are the sites that have been submitted, so which one are we going to choose? Sadly, most of them are in that position, because that's the process that most local authorities seem to follow these days. Please keep saying that. Uh, I think... The challenge is we have to stay within the law, but uh, you, can, you, you can interpret the law how you like. Um, Councillor Harris, then Councillor Barker. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm making a giant leap, really, between some of the things you've um, just mentioned, and really my question will go to um, Mr Taylor. But you mentioned that you've been working with some of our neighbouring authorities, Braintree in particular. Um, I wonder whether or not you could just give us a bit more detail, Andrew, on what level of duty to cooperate we might be talking about in terms of housing. So I'm not for one moment suggesting that we should um, put all of our housing in Braintree, but if we were to do that, what kind of levels can we look at in terms of duty to cooperate? Um, I mentioned uh, earlier uh, in in previous meetings as well that we've had various discussions with Braintree. Um, That's mainly uh, along the fact that there are two sites which cross the border. It's not to do with moving houses one, one side or the other, it's just that there are two sites put forward in the Braintree call for sites and Probably put forward, yeah, probably put forward in our call for sites. As I said, we haven't been through the entire process of looking at them. And therefore, we have to understand what each council is, is doing with those sites. So, you know, if the proposal was to take anything like that forward, and, you know, we're miles off any of thought about that, it wouldn't be us putting our housing in Braintree or Braintree putting their housing in us. It's sort of the, the sites across the boundary, so it would be a, some sort of joint approach. Um, I think the work that the team have been doing is is more at the other end of of Braintree, certainly to some extent, looking at joint working with Colchester as well. So there's a whole range of different different sites that, um, but obviously we're only interested in the sites to some extent that cross our border. I know, um, just historically we've spoken more about being in a position where we would have to take housing for some of the other districts, but if we were looking, if you were looking at one of the larger garden sites there, there potentially could be some interest for us, that's all. Thank you. Councillor Barker. Thank you, Chairman. I, I just wanted to ask opinions on sort of 
I, I feel that if you bolted 2,000 houses, 5,000 houses onto Dunmo, you would find a very strange conflict between the town council and the new entity, inasmuch as the new entity would be still paying council tax, if you like, to Dunmo Town Council, and Dunmo Town Council would say, well, hang on, they're all right, they can manage on their own, or any other town council. And I, I just feel that it would create a very interesting thing, and I can almost see that a new entity, a bit like Flitch Green, would want to create its own parish or its own town council, and I just wondered what, what your thoughts were on that. I appreciate Letchworth is a different size, um, but I think if you had a new entity, would that be a, a way forward that's been adopted? Well, I, I, I mean, I don't think there is a straight answer to that. It would depend upon Dunmo and the local people and the new community as to how that got resolved. But there's no reason why Dunmo shouldn't be part of the arrangements for a new community that happens to fall within the parish area. And it, I mean, what, what I think is so difficult about these discussions is you talk about moving houses around as though it was something that nobody wanted to do. And yet, my grandchildren need somewhere to live. I've got seven of them. They, six of them live in the UK. One of them's already gone to Australia, but um, they need somewhere to live. And living in the southeast for children with an average pay at the moment is virtually impossible. And we've got to find a way of solving that problem. Um, and so it's about creating opportunities in the places where you as councillors think you should do development and then creating the kind of arrangements with local people because I think somebody asked earlier on about do you talk to local people you need to talk to local people about this this is going to be controversial it's going to be difficult it's going to be challenging people will say we don't want development here um, you've got to decide where the right place for that development is and then you've got to make the case to local people that they can have the kind of governance arrangements that Dunmo Parish Council wants. They can have the sort of um, uh, arrangements for the management of public facilities that the local people want, that they, can, they the local people, can sit on those facilities, can, can manage them themselves. Um, the council will take a benevolent view of that rather than say these are our local authority services and you mustn't do them because we need more money spent on public services than any of you are likely to raise through council tax or grants from government. So it's, it's, it's about creating in your local area the kind of relationships between everybody who needs to be involved, public, developer, landowner uh, and the authority to make sure that people get uh, a decent standard of service rather than the incremental new housing estate stuck down the end of the road which has been fought for five years and then finally gets given on appeal. That's what you're trying to avoid. You're trying to do this job, planning job in an effective way that does deliver for the local people, not just the local people who live there now, but the local people who will live there in 50 years' time, including possibly one of my grandchildren. So, we've been uh, around the committee. I did offer if there are a couple of burning questions from members of the public. If you'd like to come up and use that microphone. Um, and I'll take one other, and then we will move on to our meeting. Whoops. The lady's bag is just all over the floor. If you could just inter introduce yourself, please. Thanks. Um, yeah, good evening. It's uh, Tony Clark. 
Um, I'd just like to sort of say a few words in, <clears throat> in support of developers, really, because um, it seems to me that that's key to everything that you've been talking about, because garden cities, garden suburbs aren't just about houses, I'm, I'm sure you'll agree. They're also about employment opportunities. Um, and turning back to the subject of developers, there are two types. There are those who make their profits of building houses and therefore rely on project profits and there are much bigger developers who look for long-term revenue streams with profits attaching. And it seems to me that garden cities, garden suburbs go with big developers because what developers are interested in are the long-term revenue streams. Um, and they make those long-term revenue streams from rents on offices, shops, commercial facilities that are a fundamental part of the Garden City development. You don't just get the houses, you get everything else that comes with it. And so if we are to pursue the idea of garden, a Garden City or Garden Suburbs within Uttlesford, and it's an idea that I've strongly supported for a long time, um, it seems to me that what we might be well advised to do is rather than look for sites, we ought to be looking for developers. We ought to be inviting proposals from developers to submit proposals to us for garden city suburbs and garden or a complete garden city. And, and indeed, we already have such proposals. There are several here already. Thanks very much indeed. I don't know if you have a... Well, certainly the, the point you make about the long-term interest of, of the bigger developers um, is consistent with our thinking. Um, and part of the problem uh, with the uh, current situation is that relatively small builders uh, want a planning permission but don't want to pay for anything else. Um, now, small builders can be incorporated within a garden city, so they don't need to be excluded but they need to be part of a process in which their contribution is producing an income in the medium term. Um, we are currently having conversations with some of the um, big property developers and the finance houses about how long-term development gets funded with what we call patient finance, which means finance that's not looking to get out within three years and take its profit out of the land but is actually committed to a long-term stream of income which can be sold on to the Canadian Pension Fund or to other bodies that are looking for something that's got a guaranteed income in the long term. Um, and if you do the development with that in mind, what you're looking for is uplifts that come from the quality of the development rather than from the quickness of the development. And so that is part of the Garden City uh, concept. Could I just uh, suggest a small variation to, to what you've suggested? I think that rather than ask developers to put proposals to you uh, for land, what you should do is formulate your vision for what you want and have an idea of whether it's viable. You know, so actually do some work on it and actually work out whether all the things you think are needed uh, have been costed and whether or not it looks as if they could be viable and how they might be financed. If you then decide that you'd like a development partner at a large scale to work with you on this, then choose one, but actually put the opportunity out and get them to compete for it so that you get the best terms. So 
And I think just to add to that, then you, what you're in control of is the quality. You're not actually dependent yeah. on the developer and what the developer is going to produce. You're in the. It, Sorry, the I'm going to. If, 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 I'll, I'll take one more from the floor, if that's okay. Um, and then I don't see anybody. Okay, uh, Councillor Redfern. Sorry, very quickly your final point, and then we're on to Councillor Redfern. Point is that if if you do precisely that, what you're also in control of is the funding, because you use shareholders' funds rather than bank funds. Um, I think this might be... I I'm, I'm just kind of want to ask a question, really, and it's, I don't know if it's to you guys or to Andrew or to anybody else in the room, really. But could, could we, the, the problem we obviously have here is we do have to deliver our local plan, but more importantly, as far as I'm concerned, is that we do have to deliver our affordable housing because um, that's absolutely key to what my passion here is at the council. Can you run two things side by side? Could we say, actually, our long-term plan for Uttlesford is we should have a garden city. I'm not mad keen on a garden suburb, to be honest. I don't think that that would... Because of the type of our district, it, you know, when you talk about tacking something on to somewhere else again, you know, we all know how everybody feels and I'm not even sure that there is an area where everyone would go, yes, that's the right place for a garden suburb or a garden city. But just let's say we could find somewhere. Um, could you run that as a separate thing that in the long term that will deliver us, I don't know, 20,000 houses, but in the, sort of the shorter term, which I'm talking about 20 years that we're looking at for the local plan, continue with what we're, what we're doing to deliver what we need across the district. We obviously do have a need and every area, every, every time we do a housing needs survey, wherever we do it, there is always a housing need and that's not going to change. We're not going to go, well actually we've got a garden city coming and everybody can, who's in housing need can go there. We need to deliver across the whole district. But can you run the two things side by side or do you have to rely on the fact that we're being told we need let's say for example 580 houses a year we multiply that by 20 years and that's what we have to do or can we actually go no we want to do we want to, we want to look for a new city but we want to deliver our local plan at the same time does that or how does that match up together we've got the gist <laughs> um I mean, I think, I think it's, it forms an integral part of the local plan process. I don't think what the team is suggesting is that it's something different. It forms part of a strategy. And I think what you're saying is that large-scale developments of whatever scale, you know, take a long time to, to come to fruition. You know, there's a lot of time for the development to... You, know, you need to look at North Stowe and uh, near us, you know, the amount of Campbell and the amount of time it's taken to get there. And we still need to deliver our, our housing supply within that intervening period as well. So if we did go down the line of some sort of new settlement, um, garden, garden settlement, it would provide over a number of years a base amount of housing, but it wouldn't, wouldn't be there next, next week, and it wouldn't be there next year. It would take five, ten years to, to, to get going. So if we did go down that line, we would probably need other development as well to balance out the supply of housing that we, that we need to deliver. And that, yes, that wouldn't 
all be in, in one place because it's the same sort of thing. It, will, it may, may need to be spread around. So yes, it is. But what a garden city potentially would do, or garden settlement would do, it wouldn't be within just one plan period. So I think we heard earlier that we're talking about a long-term vision. So it might be that the garden development, you know, it's allowed for in this local plan, together with other development, to ensure we have a supply of housing. But actually, it's delivering over two, three plan periods, which is then a long-term vision for your area, and it develops over that longer-term process. So, you know, you, we, we might be making a hard decision now, and in five, ten years' time, that hard decision will still be paying out, I suppose. I don't know whether the team wants to comment. Just, just before, and as a, as a final word, you answer that one. Two things, if I may. Um, one of the problems of a single settlement is that if you're still only building at 150-ish houses a year, which seems to be, that's been our experience in some of the larger developments that we've done locally, it does jeopardise your five-year land supply. Just wondering if there's any evidence that um, a, a garden city or suburb builds at a faster speed. That's my first question. And second question is, I've heard, I have heard of um, garden villages, which does sound and, uh, from a marketing point of view to be an easier concept to digest and I just uh, wondered if you've got a comment on that and then we'll conclude so thank you in terms of the first question I think there is evidence and there is also a good reason why you should believe that a garden settlement could deliver at a faster pace you know it wouldn't all happen at once it would still be long term and the reason is because if you take control of it uh, and have, uh, eventually have control over how the land is used and how it's put to the market. You can make sure, for instance, on housing, that you have a number of different housing developers building at any one time, offering a variety of house types. Um, if a developer is leading on that, they, they may be a consortium of two or three developer house builders, and all they want to do is build at the pace they feel comfortable with for 25, 30 years. So if you're in control, I mean, again, give you an example. This is a different scale, and it is a few years ago. Uh, in Milton Keynes, when we uh, developed Milton Keynes, we had control of the land there. At one time, we had 55 different house builders building at one time. That gave us something like three times the annual rate of housing that most new towns were getting. And, it's be, and, and it was delivering more variety as well. And it was meaning that places people lived in were becoming mature and developed more quickly. They weren't living in a sea of mud for as long as they otherwise would have been. So there are ways you can increase pace if you have control over the release of land. Mm. Yeah. Well, what you call things is always terribly important, isn't it? Um, the, the bit I was thinking of in, is um, near Black Notley, in, um, near Braintree, which is a, which is a garden village. Um, and I hit upon that by chance by going to the pub that's down the bottom end of the road one day, because um, I have a son who lives in Essex. And um, I mentioned this, and it turned out it's where the leader of Braintree lives. So that went down very well when I told him what a good development I thought it was. <laughs> but I do. I mean, it is actually, it's just a nice piece of development. It isn't a, a garden city because it's a bit tacked on, effectively. Um, but it's a nice place to live. It's got some facilities. Uh, and the quality of the design and, and layout is, is excellent and much better than you will get if you fight a developer for five years over a planning permission for a bit of incremental growth. And it, 
That's the real argument. The real argument is that if you do this planning job up front, if you talk to the landowners and the infrastructure providers and you decide what it is you as an authority want, you put yourself in a better position to get a better outcome for the people that you, who elect you and, and who expect you to do this job properly. And that's really what we want to help you to do if you want us to help you. But, uh, you know, equally we've got plenty of other things to do. I've got seven grandchildren. I don't need, don't need the work. Well, on behalf of uh, the... No, I'm sorry, I've closed it now. But... Please. Please. Very briefly. But Don't look so cross, please. The guys down here just passed me um, an article from The Guardian that was from April last year that said garden cities, um, housing minister said garden cities don't have to deliver a single affordable house. Is that, is that the case? Thank you. It's not true. It's, 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 it's your... Okay. If I could just say, it was a spokesman for the Department of Communities and Local Government confirmed there were no Whitehall targets for the number of affordable homes in garden cities. He's obviously a liar. Okay. Okay, I think you've had an answer to that point. So, uh, if I may, in conclusion, uh, on behalf of the uh, committee and the meeting, uh, thank Garden City Developments, uh, Brian Briscoe, John Walker and Linda Addison for coming here this evening and spending an hour with us. It has been absolutely fascinating. It is real food for thought. And um, you know, I'm sure we'll deliberate on this and, uh, uh, and uh, consider. So many thanks for coming. We wish you a very enjoyable holiday, Sir Brian, and let you go back and do the packing. <laughs>
and thirdly that there will be a site visit to five acres and from a personal view hopefully not between the period of the 9th and 19th of July this I think you promised us that there would be a site visit of members to understand what the situation is at five acres Mr Taylor um, thank you Chairman uh, yes it's our intention to bring the report to the next meeting on the 13th of July um, yes well we've received all the informa additional information we needed from um, consultees I think we've given to the 19th of June um, for um, the site owner and, and parish to make any comments on that information although we have received information from them but I think we've given them so there might be some more information coming in but we think we have sufficient um, and certainly I think what was said was that we would carry out a site visit to all sites um, before we made decisions on which sites to allocate um, we haven't got any, any deadlines for that yet um, so we just need to go so the, the process for the 13th is to receive the updated the additional report of the bit that was outstanding which was in relation to five acres um, when that would then chart the the process from then on I suppose but there will be a site visit and it will be to all the sites this was an undertaking given at the last meeting I think uh, it wasn't undertaken by me I think we suggested it um, yes so what I'm saying is the time scale will depend on the outcome of, of what we present to you at the next meeting um, but yes it, the idea was that we would visit all the sites before any decisions were taken on which were to suggest as allocations I think I gave the undertaking so I stand by my undertaking we will be doing a site visit to all sites thank you anything else on item anything else on item 21 22 23 yes chairman I've got, a, I've got a question about the... Um, or a, this is item 22. Sorry, I thought you said... I thought we moved on. Yeah, I have, yeah, yeah. 23. Yeah, yeah, fine. No, 23. Yeah. This, is, this is talking about the um, assessment of the um, sites that have been, I believe, put forward by developers. My questions really are, who will carry out this assessment? How can it be done so quickly what criteria will be used? How can we be assured that it will be done objectively, taking account of pros and cons, including the strategic needs of the district? And who will have agreed the strategic needs of the district, bearing in mind we haven't had any discussions on that so far? I'll ask uh, Mr. Taylor, but um, I think we've partly had that answered in our previous presentation but and if this is going back to the same point about speed and ability to make decisions um, what I was going to say is that after item six we would talk about the agenda for the next meeting um, and if you like the next two meetings so that we've got some confidence about the speed that we're going at but I'll ask Mr Taylor just to elaborate on that um, all the call for sites are um, currently being processed so they're all being put on on a spreadsheet um, and emails being opened um, and envelopes being opened etc when we get a, a batch we're sending them off to the county council they're going to appraise them carry out the sustainability appraisal and I suppose that the um, what they assess them against is 
has been set out in the in sort of the methodology that we've already consulted, been to you and we've consulted on in terms of um, the, the sustainability criteria. Um, that won't um, conclude which sites are necessarily better than others. It will, it will carry out the assessment saying which are close to sites of special scientific interest or flood zones or air quality areas, a whole range of different different aspects. And then that data will then be presented back to the working group uh, at a future meeting. Um, and that will also then be out as part of the public consultation later on this year, September, October time. And it will be for um, officers and, and this working group to then take that data and say, and take the, the strategies that we'll talk about over the next few meetings in terms of distributing and say, well, how do these sites fit into those, those strategies um, together with the SIV mapping exercise? So it's a whole range of different bits coming together in layers. It's, I don't want to use it too much, but it is an iterative process over many weeks and months to get to a situation where we think that, well, yes, this is the right strategy, these are the right sites, and these, this is how we want to take it forward. But the first stage, we won't be looking at which sites we think should be proposed until after the next public consultation. I mean, I mean the re reason I raise it, I understand what Mr. Taylor is saying now, but you know, t taking account of the presentation that we've just had, where we haven't started to get our mind around this concept of garden extensions, garden cities, wh whatever you want to call them, I'm, I'm just trying to understand how far this assessment process will have gone, um, and will it... And, and how far it cannot go if, 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 it's, if the people who are carrying out the assessment haven't got a clue as to whether we're interested in garden settlements and broadly where they might be because presumably there's some kind of um, rule which said, well, there's no point looking in that location, but these other locations might do. So, so I'm, in other words, is this, is this an iterative process? And, and it does come back to the point I raised earlier about the number of meetings that we've got. If we've got a meeting in July which says, receive this assessment, what will it tell us? How, what, what sense can we make of it if we haven't already started to think about the big picture? Um, so, so, so two things. One is, have we got enough stages in this process? And secondly, are they in the right order? Or do we have to do it iteratively, you go so far, and then you go back and you revisit the assessment? I that's what I'm trying to understand, you know, a bit, a bit sort of second layer of the, of the process, that, to make sure it's thorough mm. and that we aren't just being bounced into agreeing things no, simply okay. because it's on, well, the time, on the calendar. That's, that's we, 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 we'll absolutely... <laughs> do that and to make sure that this committee, um, which I'll repeat is only an advisory committee, is happy that it has the information to make the appropriate decision. Because it is important that uh, we have a, 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 an idea of the strategy. Um, I, I, I don't want there to be any suggestion or thought. It has to be a totally transparent process. We've said that from day one. But I don't want there to be any assum a, 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 a assumption of, 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 of pre um, assumption um, in terms of predetermination that it has got to uh, the strategy has got to be there in conjunction with the with the sites and indeed the criteria when we know what the sites are for one site against another and of course we've just had a fourth piece of the jigsaw fed in tonight we will just touch on that in a moment so I, we, we, I, we will go at the appropriate speed councillor dean I think all I would ask at this stage is can we have, all of us have some information on what the criteria are that are going to be, these 
proposals are going to be assessed again so that at least we know what what they're doing in the background and we might then say oh but there ought to be another category or whatever okay we'll come on to, to criteria I'm, I'm going to just get the minutes out of the way and then we'll move on with the meeting but we'll come back to that point um, PP 24 25 6 7 8 thank you um, those are the minutes. Before we move on to item five, the statement of community involvement, um, let's just take the point about uh, what we'll, we'll, we'll conclude the meeting, as I said, with the agenda for the next meeting, which I think will partly answer Councillor Dean's point. But we've just had a very interesting presentation, and again, without making any assumption, any predetermination. Um, there may be things that we could do now to move the, the process forward without making any decision. Do you think that's the case, Mr. Taylor? Um, yes. Um, I think in, also partly to answer Councillor Dean's point, the assessment that's been undertaken is following the sustainability appraisal sort of regulations and criteria that's set out. It, it's, it's a formal process to go through. They're sort of factual questions here. Is it within X metres of a site of special scientific interest? Yes, no. You know, is that, is that, that's the level of the assessment that's being done at the moment, which then provides you with that information to enable the decisions to be taken later on. So it's not saying this is the best site because it leads to, you know, it fits in with that strategy that they haven't yet decided but we're pre-thinking about. So it's not, none of that sort of stuff. It's just looking at factual factual questions so that we've got all that level of information and that's that's going through a formal process that the scoping report has gone through and we can circulate that that data to you again so you, so you have it and then that provides us with a, a level of information so that's that's going on in the background that doesn't change or interact it's not interact doesn't um, counteract any thought process about garden developments or anything like that, that that one might have in terms of a strategy because this needs to be done anyway. I suppose the, the issue um, in terms of other work we're doing that, that might help to move the, the process on, um, we're doing the, the sieve mapping exercise looking at, you know, if it, you, are, are we missing any sites that, that we should be looking at in, in lots of detail, which I know are some of the questions that came up earlier that no one suggested. So we're doing that piece of work and that will come to you um, in, in future. So that work's ongoing. And obviously if something starts dropping out, we can we can think, well, actually, should we investigate that in a bit more detail? I'm not saying anything has or will, but that's something we can look at. Um, we're obviously will continue the dialogue with, with the, the team. We've, we've had a, uh, conversations with ATLAS, who was, was mentioned, which is the government's team, advisory team on large applications, ATLAS is what it stands for, in terms of seeing what advice and support they could offer to us. We've had a, a couple of meetings, um, and we need to report back to them after, after this meeting and the next meeting of the working group to see the direction of travel. You know, If the direction of travel is going down a new settlement direction rather than a, a dispersal, then that's we can start getting other people involved as well. So there are, there are other streams of work that we can do and, and pull in um, to ensure that you know we've, we've got the necessary information for you to make the decisions when when you need to, but without without rushing any decision process. So that's why we wanted to 
start off now and drip feed some thoughts it, you know, so that you can think about these before the next meeting so that you've got a, a time to think about the different options that are available. Can I just check? So we're not therefore talking about an assessment of the sort that I presume was carried out with some sort of grand committee on the old schla, where we had loads and loads of comments about particular sites that a group of wise people looked at and published. Is it lower level, earlier stage than the schla publication? Um, it's not being... Um done by a group of people yes it's being done um, I suppose to a specific methodology and then that will that's the sustainability assessment of the call for sites we will need to that will develop into a, a, a schla document that we will need to have and, and, and present to you Later on. Mm. Um, no I, I don't think I said that the call for the, the sustainability appraiser won't come back to you in July necessarily thank you um, I suppose this is addressed to Andrew, really. Will you be going out to consultation on a single settlement or um, a dispersal option? Because you did last time, but uh, and I believe a majority of people in Atlasford were against dispersal, but that didn't happen. So will you be going out again uh, to consultation, and will we be getting any feedback from that consultation? Um. Well, this is what we've been talking about. This is what you will need to think about over the next next few meetings in terms of the different sorts of strategies. It won't. You, we can't just go out to consultation on one strategy. There will need to be a range of strategies, but they'll all need to be deliverable. They'll all need to be something that can actually happen. So I suppose, yes, there will be a strategy that says we're going to distribute it all over the place. There will be a strategy that says we're going to have a new settlement and other development. So I suppose one that we might say there's bound to be. But we haven't, you haven't had those discussions. We're going to have to suggest things to you. And, and as part of that discussion, you will think about these different strategies. And at some point, the working group, the council, will have to say, well, this is our preferred strategy, but we're not there yet. So I can't tell you what we're going to go out to consultation because you haven't made that decision. Councillor Parry. Shouldn't we have decided things like that before the call for sites? No. What we're doing, what, what you do in the call for sites is say what sites are available, what sites are out there, and then we have that information. What we did do is we asked a specific question, as you remember, um, about garden cities. So we asked for developments over a certain threshold to say how their development would meet the principles of garden cities. Not that we thought that we'd definitely go down that route, but so that we had that information because there was a hint towards um, a new settlement in, in the inspector's comments. So we thought if we asked those questions at an early stage, we'd have that information when we get to it. What we can't do is we can't, we can't decide on a strategy in complete isolation from the sites that are available or even the, you know, the SIV mapping exercise, if it throws up anything different. They have to be a realistic proposal. I mean, the sort of things that um, the, the team were talking about in terms of ensuring it can be delivered, whether that's talking to the landowners, a whole, all these issues will need to be um, to go through. So we need the call for sites in terms of that evidence so we can start looking at all the sites that are available, how they might fit into different, different distribution strategies. As well. And that's not just for housing, that's for employment and all sorts of different things. So it's that an important part of that process. You, you've done a call for sites and that site's sort of available now that people know of, that developers have got. If sites become available because things happen, 
people die, people sell their land, can they be added in at a later date, up until the you know up until the plan is produced, really? It's one of those messy things. You'd almost want something to stop at a certain date, and you can't take any other sites. But that's not how life is. So every you know in the consultation. Um, in September, October time, we'll also say, is there any other sites that are available? And, and you, you do get the extra few every, every, so, every so often. Now, the, the sites that have been put forward aren't just from developers. They're from individual people and landowners. That's what I mean. we, we, had a, we had a threshold from, up from six onwards. We've got all sorts of small sites that have been put forward by individuals who've got a bigger, bigger garden than others, for example. All sorts of sites like that that we will need to assess and you'll need to consider. So it's not just developers that have put sites forward. Um, but yes, we will continue so to open. get throughout the process. It's open, the call for sites. Why did you close it? Well, you have to have a... Pro so then, then you can have, a, have them appraised. So you can start... If you, if you just continue to have it open, you'd never, you'd never moved on. So you have a, a period of time where you have a concerted effort to find those sites. Then you send them away to be appraised. So then we have a whatever that window is, two or three months when that's been done, then we'll have a document which is a, have all the technical assessment to enable us to go through. It might be that in four months' time, that another site comes forward, we might have to get it appraised, and it might be the answer to all our questions. We don't know, but we have to have a process and a, a timescale, I suppose, otherwise we would never move forward. Councillor Barker, then we'll move on to item five. Thank you. Yes, I, I just wanted to say that once we've done the call for sites, there is the issue that some of the preferred strategies we might want to go out to consultation on as a dispersed strategy, there might not be enough houses on dispersed strategies on small sites to actually deliver that. Um, you know, and if we don't get any garden city or garden suburb proposals, again, you know, that would affect what we can actually go out to consult on. Okay, Mrs Nicholas, item five, statement of community involvement. Thank you. Um, the Statement of Community Involvement sets out how the Council will undertake its different stages of consultation. That's not only local plan but also planning applications. Um, the Council's current um, statement was adopted in February 2013 and in light of the forthcoming work on the local plan offices considered appropriate to carry out a review and refresh the document and publish it for consultation. The Working Group approved the document for consultation at the last meeting and the consultation took place um, March to April. All statutory general and other consultees were informed and it was also advertised on the planning policy consultation page of the website. 13 responses were received and these are set out on pages 27 to 32 of the agenda um, which also in the table um, set out officers comments and recommendations. Um, Sort of just briefly going through the re recommended changes that officers are making. I mean, there's some factual stuff like updating organisations' names of Highways England and Historic England, um, putting in some additional text on duty to cooperate. I think that's page 28. Um, some additional text on prior approval applications. It's on pages 28 and 29. And uh, just clarifying that. Um, or clearly stating that recommendations should be clearly reasoned in reports. Um, and also some additional text on improving on how we talk about um, planning applications and um, improving the guidance on um, people making planning applications, um, including hyperlinks and just updating the, the text that we use. 
Um, so officers recommend, um, I think this report has to go to Cabinet, take guidance on that, um, for the statement to be amended as set out in the report of representations. Thank you. Councillor Dean. I've got um, a genuine and sincere concern about consultation. First of all, I see that only 13 people uh, responded to this particular consultation on the consultation process, um, and that's probably because there's a degree of, or more than a degree of, consultation fatigue out there, uh, because I think various versions, of, I don't know what iteration we're on, we must be on iteration six or something on, on this thing over, over the number of years, and that then brings me really on to, if you will, the, the real public consultation on, on, the, on the meat of the matter, which uh, is due to begin in September. And I, I suppose, you know, this, this is a question I don't have an answer to. It's, a, it's an open question, really. You know, how are we going to overcome the cynicism, uh, to describe it one way, of, of the public in this, that it's been you know, going on for so long, and, and to, you know, to convince them that this is not just another cosmetic exercise, that it's that it real, and that you know, hopefully it's going to be different, and maybe there'll be new concepts coming out, as we've been earlier this evening. I, 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 think, I think we need to really think about that, that we... Uh, address it as a, as a, a real issue because I, out there it's quite clear that on this particular one not many people are they, they've got fed up with, with, with these consultations and yet we do we, you know we don't want a situation that we had before and I, I remember I've heard statements oh well you know only so many people bothered to comment therefore nobody's bothered so therefore we'll do what we want to do I, I think we've got to, we've really got to find a way of not getting in that situation um, because it's it's a real one I think or potentially a real a real risk should I say not anybody else agrees with me well yeah I mean we always have to remember that a consultation is not a referendum um, and um, you know, of course we will listen most carefully um, but if you uh, consult on a whole plan you Get, get I, I guess a broader perspective if you consult on it by piece then obviously you'll get the comments of those people who are uh, affected most locally so it, it is a difficult uh, because I think you know we can all predict the risk at the end of the day this committee is very aware as the council is aware that it has to come up with a local plan which means to say it has to um, um, recommend sites for development and I won't mention numbers but we've all got an idea of those uh, what those numbers might be so um, there is not going to be universal approval to our conclusions I think we have to accept that so how you interpret the, the response and the consultation to that I think is a, going to be a, a delicate matter for this committee but I totally agree with you Councillor Dean it, it has to be um, a, a listening process uh, but remember at the end of the day you have to make a decision and I think we, we really need to keep repeating that to ourselves. Councillor Davis. Yeah, thank you. I'll probably reiterate the point that I was just made. I was looking to make that point myself. And um, the second one, and, and rather kind of selfish question, um, in light of our um, looking to launch through the Const uh, Constitutional Working Group the Community Engagement Panel, I, I 
find it quite useful to understand who didn't respond um, to it. And if we, you know, if we just we we had a one-way request of here's here's where you can go, or if we actually kind of reached out, I think that would be really useful because I think one of the important things for us is to be able to, you know, engage and seek opinion and and comment um, from you know town and parish councils, etc. I noticed that an individual was probably the person who wrote the most out <laughs> of anyone here, and, and that's just that's just a single person. I mean, not many parish councils responded. Um, some some adjoining authorities did. Um, so what we've got, Chelmsford, Braintree, Epping, I think, wasn't it? Um, so could we assume that any that don't appear on here just didn't respond? Yeah, I, yeah. it's not a controversial document, no, to be honest. No, no. Um, so, <laughs> um, and... It's, it's, the sec, it's the second review from the first, first one, and the last time it was reviewed was um, because of changes um, sort of in, in planning process. Um, I mean, there are lots of sort of statutory bodies, you know, um, und, you know statutory undertakers in using old language that haven't responded, but um, and often they're just making sure that we've got their, their correct consultation details. So... There are no other comments. Uh, we do need to recommend to Cabinet that the statement of community involvement be amended as set out in the report of representations. All those in favour? Those against? Abstentions? Un unanimously carried. Moving on to item six, um, recognising that we had quite a, a considerable presentation of this item. Um, who is... Mrs. Nicholas, thank you. Um, sorry, bear with me. The, um, the actual five-year land supply statement starts on page 33. The officer's report is, follows it on page 45, so it's slightly the wrong way around than um, normal. Um, I'll be quite quick. As you say, um, we've already talked about this in the... Um, discussions we had before the meeting. So um, each year we calculate the number of houses built and how many have planning permission and still to be built and we also note which sites are under construction so, and that gives an indication when housing is likely to be delivered. Um, the, the council is required to show how much housing it estimates will be delivered in the next five years and that's set out in, a, in Appendix 1 on page 37 site by site, sort of year by year and how this compares with the number of houses required to be built over the five years, and that's set out in paragraphs five to eight of the statement, that's page 34. There are various um, technical issues. I mean, we looked at the, um, what the local plan inspector considered, and that's a figure that has been discussed at... Um, appeals into um, planning application refusals and was considered by those inspectors as to be a reasonable number to consider at this current time. Um, but paragraph 6 also looks at the latest household projections, which is what the government says should be the starting point. But until we get the outcome of the um, strategic housing market assessment, that, uh, is, these are just the best figures that we have to work on at the moment. Um, paragraph 8 just talks about additional requirements that we get accused of by developers as not including, but the um, inspector at the local plan um, 
who looked at um, all the evidence before him came out with those points that we didn't have to um, add in some additional numbers that some authorities have to. Um, so the statement shows that with a 5% buffer we can de demonstrate 5 point years but this falls to 4.4 with a 20% buffer. Um, we are awaiting some further appeal decisions as we previously heard um, and it is easier to defend our housing policies if we can demonstrate a 5 year supply of houses and um, we do keep a, a note on what's, what's permitted um, since the 1st of April which is the base date of this document so as you say there were 40 approved subject to section 106 at last planning committee Thank you Any, Mrs Councillor Parry What size this isn't all the developments in this chart because all the single and you know where there's one or two houses are they included in the five-year land supply just not in this document or they, they are included there's an estimate of 50 a year they're sort of known come forward as a windfall allowance which I think is is on um... so they're all included under that yeah so in the top the top line of the chart um, on, yeah. on appendix one on page 37 gives a windfall allowance of 50 a year which the inspector considered was a realistic figure. It's probably actually quite pessimistic, and we if that's the right way around, we probably get, we'll probably get more than 50 a year. I but that's what because we seem to be getting that in Newport <laughs> at the moment. But single um, sites dotted about. Uh, that's what we can. That's been defendable at appeal. Okay. So, so they're all included. Yeah. But once it's built, so for instance, in year 1415, we actually had. 70 small sites some of them won't be windfall in the government's definition but they're not specifically identified below so once they're built they count you know we don't they don't get lost once they're built but we just assume that 50 a year will come forward so all those little single houses yeah. are being counted yeah. yeah yeah thank you councillor oliver just just a minor point if one looks at the capacity gross on your chart Right. Is that a relevant figure in the third line in, third column in, capacity gross? How relevant is that? Is that that you add all that up and that gives you a figure? Is that that's, that's the total capacity of that site, I hope, although... Well, I think, can I just draw your attention, there is a, there's an error there. Fourth one down or so, the Jubilee Works at Clavering, you've got 14. All right, it's more than that, isn't it? And there's 24. Yeah. yeah. Have, I found you next, have I found you 10 extra houses? <laughs> no. <laughs> because there's, there's 24 if you add up the years. In report. So re report really yeah, no. It's, that's just to give people an idea of the capacity of the site incorrectly in that case. Councillor Dean. Chairman, I've got. Um, a number of questions through the documents. So if I start at the beginning, and I don't know whether you want to take other questions page by page rather than have, have me. Probably easier to answer on that basis. So do one question at a time. Yeah, I won't drone yep. on forever, right? But I won't cut you off. <laughs> well, page 33, I think, um, I think the point that was made in the workshop earlier, but I think ought to be uh, repeated here this question of. <clears throat> This question of whether Uttlesford should or should not consider a 20% buffer rather than a 5% buffer. I mean, it's certainly my 
interpretation from looking at this information that we should be in the 5% category rather than the 20, but I, I, I gather that one inspector recently thought otherwise. So um, I guess my question is how are we going to bottom this out so that we aren't forever um, dancing around knowing which way to turn? I can answer that one. Yes, please. It will be done on an inspector by inspector basis, and uh, the aggressive inspectors, uh, sorry, the aggressive developers, will argue that we we need a 20% uh, supply because we haven't hit uh, the target in the last five years, um, and others will accept uh, the position that uh, Mr. Taylor indicated earlier that um, we are near to our figure and uh, have a clear plan over the next five years. So it, this is, unfortunately, the law, as you know, is not a black and white environment. It's a shades of grey. So um, that, that's why the next two decisions by two inspectors of fairly substantive um, appeals will be important. If they go for 20%, they'll start to set the uh, case precedent. I don't know if you want to add to that. Shall I move on to page 34? Right, okay. Very simple question. In paragraph 5 at the top of third, page 34, what paragraph in what document is being referred to there? Paragraph ID2A-015, blah, blah, blah. Planning practice guidance notes. Planning practice guidance notes, okay. It's on the website. So right. it's the sort of sister document to the National Planning right. Policy okay. Framework. I couldn't, I couldn't see what it was referring to. Sorry, Fine. My, my apologies. Okay. Um, C... Now, further down, um, I, I think one of the things that this new working group needs to have a, a session on is, is the, um, how we got to 580 or how, how we are at 580 already because, of course, I know this has been going on for years and it's been starting at 420 and down to 313 all over the place. But I think before we start um, uh, considering the, the new assessment that's going on at the moment. I think all members ought to understand how we got to 580 and obviously we can't do that now. I'm not asking that. I can answer that one as well. Uh, we got to don't make it too simple. We got to 500. And we, I won't give you a history lesson on no, I don't uh, 320 I mean, to 400. I mean, I mean the methodology behind it yeah. is one of well, the it was, a, it, it was a, a scientific methodology. Um, the problem was that we didn't have an up-to-date schmar and as you've heard that is being undertaken now. Uh, but we started as you are aware on an economic development model, um, but it became apparent from the outcome of other inspections and local plans that population growth was the determining consideration. So it became quite formulaic, actually, which is how we got to 523. Um, you know what the inspector said. He didn't say we had taken sufficient account of market conditions, and that was partly uh, complicated by the lack of a schmar, and he just lumped on 10%. Um, but we will have a fairly definitive figure as a result of the latest schmar, which will be, give you a degree of science. Um, but as you may be aware, I did go and see the housing minister before the election, Brandon Lewis, and said, I'm fed up with playing games of us putting forward a figure and your inspector saying up a bit. So the next time we do this exercise, Exercise, I want to be absolutely certain. And he has therefore uh, put us in touch with um, the lead uh, officer at DCLG on this matter, who will be referring to uh, a, an experienced inspector themselves. On, in addition to that, we've got the work that 
your committee is um, looking at. So I hope that not just this council and some fairly empiric evidence to support a figure, but also bouncing those figures off other people will, will give us something that we have a lot of confidence in. Um, but um, and it doesn't. It may not be as high as 580. To be fair, it may be lower than that. But obviously, then, then you've got the duty to cooperate, which could complicate the issue. But we'll have to see how that discussion develops. Yeah, well, that's fine. I think as long as we, when we get the new information, we essentially go back to basics and understand where it's all come from. Then that's fine, rather than just an incremental on top of no, no, or no, off. No, it won't be that. Knocking off. No. Is that it? You switched your microphone off. Well, I had it. Well, that was that page. <laughs> um, page 35. Can I, I, I've looked at the numbers, and, and you know, we, we jump from 450 to 904 between 1617 and 1718. Is there some underlying? explanation of, of that. Um, I, I, I look for a pattern somewhere and I can't work out what it is. I can do that one as well. Oh, you are good. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is a consequence of what happened in years gone past. So it's planning permission, planning permission's been granted and then the consideration of when that's going to come on stream. What the, 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 the I think the more uh, pertinent question is, is, is it possible to build at that level? Um, and if you add what they're going to do in Braintree at 900 a year and South Cam's at 800 a year and East Hearts at uh, whatever their figure is, Martin, uh, about 800, is it? Yeah, but anyway, a lot. And then you add on London, uh, which now need to build at about 40,000 a year. There isn't the capacity to build at that level. And I think this is becoming a very serious question because we're not going to be hung because we simply don't have the capacity in Uttlesford to build at that rate. So that, I think, I think they, they got to 900 on a, on, a, um, on a basis of when planning permissions were granted. Whether there is the, as I say, the resource, the, there is a national shortage of bricks, for example, at the moment. Um, so whether there's uh, the resource to build at that level is another question. You want anything to add to that? I was just going to say, if you, if you look down Appendix 1, you'll see which sites we are anticipating to come forward. And it's just that the lots of the sites that we granted permission for in the last year, you know, the details will come through, they'll start. Um, you know, and we're seeing sites that are starting now and will be completed over the next few years. It's, it's just, you know, sites coming forward. So, so obviously, with all these things, there's a degree of optimism, and it's only after the event that you know what really happened. And I mean, just to take one example on that um, table on page 42, um, Sensei Mount Fitch at Landed Elms Farm, which shows nothing happening until 1819, and yet I talked to the Arang, the planning agent, this morning, just to say, does this make sense to you? And he said to me, he thought that it would things will get underway in 1617, two years earlier. Now, again, that's not a commitment. So, so there's, there's a, obviously with all of this, there's a, there's a major degree of uncertainty, isn't there? Yes, we, we, don't, you know, we can ask the developers when they're going to start, and we had this at the local plan inquiry. You know, they would say that, wouldn't they, yeah. comes back. But we have, you know, I try to make this as realistic as possible because it has to be defended at, at inquiry. There's no point being too optimistic that the site's going to come forward and, and then we sort of lose a case. Or if we're pessimistic, it makes our figures not very good. So. Yeah, that's risk. 
No more questions on this item, Mr Chairman. Thank you, Councillor Dean. Any other questions? Otherwise, I will close item 6, which technically closes the meeting. Um, but I do think we should just remind ourselves what we are going to be discussing um, at the next meeting, just picking up Councillor Dean's point. May, may I come in at that point? First of all, um, Mr Taylor's presentation earlier did have some um, meeting dates, including two in July, and I think it showed some topics for those meetings. I'm not sure whether I'm in possession of that information. Uh, I couldn't find it anywhere, and it's not, it's not in the um, local whatever it planned that you agreed at the Cabinet in February. Um, and nor do I have any dates after the end of July, and, and, and there is none on the calendar. So it's really asking, can, can we plan further ahead and can we get our head around what, what we're going to be dealing with on future dates? And that might give us an opportunity to say, that looks like we won't have enough time, we need another one in order to have, give it more thought or a second bite of the cherry or whatever it might be. Um, Okay, let's take this one step at a time. Yeah. Um, we have July the 13th in the diary. Yeah. The date after that is? 20. 28th of July, I think. Yes. From memory. 28th is full council. No. I thought we'd asked after... July the 8th to avoid Mondays for Councillor Oliver's benefit. Well, thank you, Chairman, but it's not just my benefit. Most parish councils have their meetings on a Monday, and if, you know, we have, I'm missing two of my parish council meetings tonight, and I'm sure other members sitting around the, are also going to likely to miss their meetings if we meet on a Monday. No, point taken. Uh, I'm not going to change the 13th, and we've discussed that. But I accept that. that. I won't th be here. Th thereafter, <laughs> Um, if we could avoid a Monday. Well, the dates that have been circulated are the 13th and 27th. Yeah, I'm not to change those. July. But, but I have nothing after that. No, no, nor have we. Um, no, we, we. We can come back to the 27th. Let's, let's not get hung up on dates. <laughs> but um, the idea for the next meeting is that um, there will be a report on the work plan, which can set out timescales in terms of go, going forward. Um, and, and that can set out all the different topics that need to be considered by the working group and then you can consider you know how much time you think you need for the for the different topics obviously some of the discussions are dependent on getting results back from the sustainability appraisal or getting results back from the the strategic housing market assessment you know the housing numbers so <clears throat> i suppose historically the dates for these meetings have been um, set up on a more iterative basis as 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 the need arises um, we, if we're going to go out to public consultation in September, October, we will need the, you know, some, some meetings set up before that in terms of looking at looking at the information as well. Um, but the so the next meeting, if we have something on the work plan, that will hopefully clarify things in a bit more detail, as well as um, you know the other items in terms of looking at the visions and objectives that we uh, for the plan. You know, some further discussions about distribution strategies and potential options. Um, and if we have them, we can have the strategic housing market assessment in terms of the numbers and, and, and the job report that goes with it. So there are a variety of different things that we can set them all out in that report that, that will set out a, perhaps a bit 
with a bit more clarity all the different discussions and issues that you will need to be looking at over the next six months, 12 months, and, and, and then you can have a discussion about how much time you think you, you will need to consider them in. Uh, I, I, I would... Um I think that's good to start the strategy because I don't think necessarily we'll conclude the strategy in one meeting. I, I think we need time to reflect on that. And I'd like to add to strategy to criteria of what is going to make site A preferable to site B because I think we need to have that criteria sorted before we uh, look at the sites. So if we could add criteria to uh, the beginning of a discussion around strategy, hopefully we might have a, um, a schmar figure, as you indicate, but that's not within our hands. I think that would be a big step forward and then a, a timetable and a plan. I think that's, that, that, we're not rushing ourselves at, at that point. Um, just going back to um, garden villages, as I'm going to call them, um, Councillor Lodge asked the question of whether there's any money, and I think it would be helpful to know the answer to that. Um, and presumably one could uh, approach this on a spe speculative basis. We haven't made the decision that we're going to go for this, but it'd be nice to know that if we were, uh, there was money available. So if we could make some inquiries around that in terms of doing some of the spade work without actually making a decision, I think that would be helpful. Keep that uh, process going. Yeah. Councillor Lodge. And we can have that as an item on the agenda then for the next time. Yeah, good. Thank you. I have one more matter of utmost strategic importance. It's a question as to why this working group is called the Uttlesford Planning Working Group when no other body in this council has the word Uttlesford at the beginning of it. And the reason I ask it, it means that it ends up on the list of committees in the wrong position. You go down planning, oh, it's not there. Oh, it's under you right at the bottom. <laughs> so I, I just suggest that if we don't really need Uttlesford, can we drop it and then it's in order and sits beneath planning committee. <laughs> and there's one other thing to just looking across to colleagues um, from Arxton. Um, we also promised that we would have further um, information and um, statements around the, uh, the gypsies at the next meeting. Um, okay, well, that's a full agenda. I'm going to close this meeting by making two decisions. Uh, one is that we will take the word Uttlesford out of the title of this uh, group, and secondly, that we will move the date of the second 27th meeting to a non-Monday. If you'll bear with us on that, I think that's helpful and accommodating. Uh, and on that note, I thank you for your time and conclude the meeting at 9.20. Thank you.